Welcome back in to another episode of Mr. Stillman's Opus. Glad to have you on the show. I am Ben George alongside John Stillman at Rosewood Wealth. We've got a good show for you today as we dive into the must-haves of estate planning. Now, you probably hear all the time, okay, you need to have your estate plan ready. Have you gotten your estate plan done? Well, what exactly does that mean? What all do you need to have in order to have your estate plan prepared? So today, to help us with that conversation, we've invited on Timothy Nordgren, who is an attorney at Shell Bray in Chapel Hill. He specializes in estate planning, and he's going to help us go through these essential documents of the estate planning process. He's going to help us out with that today on the show. Tim Norgren on here with us. Tim, thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Always good to uh, get your wisdom on some of these matters. And we've sent a lot of folks to you over the last few years, so certainly appreciate you taking care of them. I always tell people when I'm giving them your information is, I like Tim because he's not going to try to sell you something you don't need. If there's a cheaper way to do it, he's just going to do it that way. So uh, we appreciate your looking out for folks in that regard. What I wanted to talk about today uh We'll do a couple episodes with Tim here, but uh, the first one today is uh, understanding estate documents. What are those documents that, when, when we say the estate documents, what all does that consist of? So Tim, why don't you just tell us what the documents are and we'll, we'll go back and talk about each one individually. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, yeah, so I the estate documents, I typically, first of all, kind of group into two categories. One is what we call testamentary planning, which is what, where do my assets go at the time that I that I pass away? And then the second is planning for incapacity, which is, you know, I'm obviously living, but not able to, to make decisions for myself. So, you know, as far as the, the first category, the testamentary planning, the, the typical documents, obviously, last will and testament, everybody's familiar with a, with a will. Um, that's kind of the traditional approach to estate planning, very effective for carrying out a person's wishes. Uh, they name an executor who is in charge of distributing assets from the estate. And the will spells out for the executor. You know, who who the beneficiaries are and and, and which assets they receive. Um, the other document we use quite a bit is a trust, often referred to as a living trust or a revocable trust. It functions very much like a will. It directs where a person's assets go upon death. The difference between the trust and the will is a person that creates a living trust can actually move some of their assets into the name of their trust during their lifetime and retain full control of those assets. But upon death, the trust can direct the distribution of those assets to the beneficiaries without having to go through probate, which is a court-supervised state administration process. Um, so I would say roughly half of my clients, maybe a little bit more, use the more traditional will approach. Uh, the other, the remaining clients use the, the living trust approach. One of the most common questions we get is, do I need a trust? Uh, so if that's a question you've had, stick around because our entire next episode is just going to be on that. Do I need a trust or not? So we'll dive into some of those details, but for now, uh, just kind of understanding the difference between a will and a trust, I think is important. And of course, as you said, everybody understands the will, right? The only way that a will can be read is everybody gathers in the room grandfather or uncle Billy has already died. Nobody knows what the will says. And we all have to gather in his library to find out who gets what. That's the only way you can find out what's in a will, right? That's the way I've seen it on TV. <laughs> doesn't quite work that way. Oh, it does okay. in the movies. And I, but by the way, I would love to have those be the host of those meetings. Yeah. It's very dramatic. Like public will reading. Somebody's um, mad. Somebody's tickled. Yeah. 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 It, um, normally people are notified through the mail. They get a copy of the will. 
um, from the executor. It's less dramatic than what you see uh, in the movies. But not that it can't be done that way. This is not the typical approach. I've actually never heard of it in real life actually unfolding that way. The uh, No, no. <laughs> but it makes for a great drama. Yeah. <laughs> so on the on the other side, as far as the, the, the documents, so you know, we talked about the will and the trust as two different ways to direct where assets go upon death. The incapacity portion, um, there are three documents that are that are standard. One is called a, a durable general power of attorney. Some people call it a financial power of attorney. That is the document where you a person appoints an agent, they're also called an attorney in fact, and gives that person authority to handle financial matters in the event of incapacity or in the event someone is out of the country and they're not able to tend to things themselves. And so what what would be the what would be the common uh, incapacity issues that you would see? Is it generally just like uh, cognitive decline or what are we normally talking yeah. about here? Uh, usually, usually it's cognitive decline. A person is uh, making poor financial decisions or they are being taken advantage of by some third party and the power of attorney really needs to step in to protect that individual. And that power of attorney would have a fiduciary duty to make sure that money is being handled properly. It's really important because without a durable general power of attorney, so often a family member or a friend has to go to court, has to have the person declared incompetent legally. So there's a hearing at the courthouse, and then the court actually appoints what's called a guardian of the estate. Some In some places, they call it a conservatorship to oversee the financial matters. And that's a very stressful process, a very complicated process. So having this durable general power of attorney in place, it's it's a document that the person that's named can take to the bank and can use it to access accounts and pay bills and and, and handle financial affairs. But usually it's when somebody's incapacitated mentally. And I think most people have heard of the power of attorney. I'm interested in those two adjectives that come before it, durable and general. Yes. Uh, what yes. what are those indicating about the power of attorney? Yes. So they're different, they're different kinds of powers of attorney. General power of attorney just means that the person named can really step into your shoes and handle most anything. Legal issues, tax issues, financial issues. It's an open-ended, broad authority that's granted by that document. Contrast that with a limited power of attorney. That's usually uh, comes up for a particular transaction, uh, like a real estate closing. Somebody's going to be out of town. They need somebody else to be able to sign the documents for them. So limited power of attorney is just for that particular transaction. And they're not mutually exclusive, but everybody should have a, a general power of attorney because we don't know the future and we want to make sure that that whoever steps in has the authority to handle things, whatever those things may be. And then the, the durable part of that, durable means that the document is effective from when it's signed until either the person who signs it passes away or they revoke it, they change it. <clears throat> The opposite of a durable power of attorney is what's called a springing power of attorney. A springing power of attorney does not take effect until certain conditions are met. And typically that's one or two physicians sign an affidavit stating the person is not capable of handling their own financial affairs. Um, the problem with the springing power of attorney is sometimes it's hard to get physicians to get involved in those situations. Sometimes a person is traveling and they need their trusted agent to be able to handle something, that person's not incapacitated, they're just not available. 
And so by making it a durable power attorney, it can really be used with permission. The person does not have to be incapacitated. They can give consent. Hey, please go ahead and sell the car for me or you know, pay these bills for me. So I, I, we like the durable general power of attorney, but I always talk to with clients about what type of power of attorney they should have. Yeah. Okay. So you said there were three in the incapacity. Yeah. So category. the other one, so that, that's all the first, first one. That's the first one. That was all the first one. The second one is a healthcare power of attorney. And that is a document um, where a person designates a healthcare agent to make healthcare decisions for them. If their attending physicians have determined that they lack capacity to make medical decisions. So in that one, a doctor is always going to have to determine that the patient is not able to make decisions on his on his own or her own. And at that, that point in time, the healthcare agent steps in and has permission to talk to the doctors, get second opinions, and make healthcare decisions. Um, so again, really, really important when people are thinking about their healthcare power of attorney, they're thinking about someone who could really handle the stress of those types of decisions, who would be a good advocate. Um, and dealing with healthcare providers to make sure that the person is getting the best possible medical care. So the the healthcare power of attorney is not a like a sub a more specific version of the durable general power of attorney, right? Like they're covering different things. It's not if you have the durable general, you can also do healthcare. You would also have to have the healthcare power of attorney to make those decisions. Yes, and, and they are two separate documents. Now you can name the same person in both documents, yeah. um, but they are two separate documents. Uh, and oftentimes they are different people. Uh, the person you choose to make financial decisions that may be a perfect fit for that role, but maybe there's somebody in the family who has medical training or would just be better equipped to handle medical decisions. Well, then you name that other person in the healthcare power of attorney. And I think it's really good to talk to the people before you actually name them to make sure they're comfortable serving in that role. Typically it's a family member and they're, they're going to do it no matter what. Um, but it's always good to have conversations with the people you're considering for some of these these roles. That does strike me as a basic courtesy. So yes, let's <laughs> And surprisingly, the person who you name in the power of attorney or the healthcare power of attorney does not need to sign. They don't have to sign the document. So you can, in theory, you can name someone without telling them, but of course we don't want them to be caught off guard. So yeah. um, make sure they're on board before you actually sign the documents. Okay, and then one final document in the incapacity category. Yeah, that that is called the living will. Some people call it an advanced directive. It is a document that communicates a person's wishes regarding end-of-life care. It comes up in a situation where the attending physicians have determined that the patient lacks the ability to communicate, um, they're being prolonged through artificial means, and there are really no options for treatment. The doctors have determined that they can't do anything more than prolong a person's life through a ventilator or a feeding tube. And what the living will says is at that point in time, these are my wishes. So it's designed to take the burden off of the person who has to make that decision. Um, and that is a, that tends to be a standard form in most states. North Carolina has a living will or an, or an advanced directive form. It's not the most straightforward document, but it's very important to have it. We've actually started combining those last two documents. We've, we've started including the living will within the healthcare power of attorney. Oftentimes they're, they're two separate documents. They're just very closely related. One is naming a person to make medical decisions. The other is giving guidance on end-of-life decisions. And then the final thing I want to say about the living will, it is different from a do not resuscitate order. A lot of people think a living will is a DNR. A DNR is a document you get from a doctor or a hospital that communicates your wish not to be resuscitated. That is the document that people will sometimes hang on their refrigerator. So if the paramedics show up at the house, 
and not, not to resuscitate the person. That is not a document that I prepare that comes from the healthcare providers, but a living will is part of the, you know, falls within the category of the essential estate planning documents. So we have five documents here. Spoiler alert to our next episode on do I need a trust? I think you said 50% of your clients have the trust, 50% just have the will. So I think the spoiler is not everybody needs a trust is what we've established there. So of these five documents, will, trust, durable general power of attorney, healthcare power of attorney, and living will, of those five, what are the ones that you would say everybody must have these? I would say all of those documents except for the trust. Okay. Um, and, and the trust may be necessary as well, depending on the situation. But certainly every person should have a will, the durable general power of attorney, the healthcare power of attorney, and the living will. Because they all cover different categories. They're all essential um, documents. And by the way, I would add a HIPAA authorization to that list, which is just making sure that people in these documents can access healthcare information. But we don't need to dwell on that. That's a standard form. But yeah, I would say all of those documents, except for maybe the trust, is, is kind of a case by case. So there you go. There's your five estate documents and why they're important, what goes wrong if you don't have them. Like I said, in our next episode with Tim, we'll dive into, do I need a trust or not? That's why we kind of glossed over the trust mostly on this conversation because that is an entire conversation in and of itself. Thanks for tuning in. Carolina Wealth Stewards Doing Business as Rosewood Wealth Management is a registered investment advisor in the state of North Carolina. The material presented is intended to be general information and should not be construed by any consumer as the rendering of personalized investment advice. 